You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, the Go Wild app has added some really cool and exciting functionality to their app. And the first one I want to talk about is the Near Me function. And basically what this does, it allows you to engage and connect with people in your area. You guys can talk about gear. You guys can talk about hunting areas. You guys can talk about what's going on in the woods. And it just allows the users to be more of a community and connect easier. The second part is the gearbox. And what the gearbox is, it is a an opportunity for the users to not only see reviews on products and see what the go wild community is using in the field what products they're using but it also allows you guys to purchase up to 150,000 products there's you, there's a shopping function on it so Check out the Go Wild app. If you haven't downloaded it to your phone yet, you need to, and you can do that at any app store that is currently available. Go Wild. It's an awesome app. Check them out. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Here's the question. What in the world happened to all the quail? But better yet, how much has the landscape changed from the heydays of quail to now and how it's completely shifted from a landscape that was very conducive for bobwhite quail to now, you might say, is very well uh, or very productive for raccoons. Uh, we're going to discuss all that on today's podcast with Kyle Hedges. But before we get kicking on that, I want to remind you guys or discuss a little bit about uh, something that makes this podcast possible, but better yet, something that most of us do every single day when we kick off the morning and that's with a good cup of coffee. Want to b- make a big shout out for Niangua Coffee. That is N I A N G U A C O F F E E dot com. Niangua Coffee. Some of our dear friends, but also some of our favorite coffee to kick off the morning. So go check them out. All right, guys. Welcome back. Land Lakes Podcast. Adam here. Um, Bringing Mr. Kyle Hedges back on. Kyle, thanks for coming on. Hey, glad to be back on. Always yeah, look forward to it. It's been a, it's been a little bit. Um, it's been a busy, 
busy few weeks. I guess it's been a month or so since you were on last. We talked about conservation grazing, utilizing cattle into uh, wildlife operations, and uh, specifically disturbance for um, quail and the importance of it. Um, pretty good podcast. A lot of a lot of eyes open. A lot of guys emailing in as and kind of making comments. Interesting viewpoint. Once again, breaking the mold of traditional um, thought processes with cattle and wildlife. Uh, but this week, it's the ongoing question that you hear so much. What, pretty much, I guess we could say, what the heck happened to all the quail? And then we could follow that up with a big blank and say, fill in with some of the most random, crazy thoughts anyone could ever say, and that's what happened to the quail. Am I right? Yep. Yep, that's right. And, you know, everybody wants this silver bullet, and I do too. It'd be great. It'd be great if we could put a silver bullet in the gun and and fix the quail problem, but it's so much more complicated than that. And uh, that's why I've been wanting to do this podcast, because I want to talk about all the little deals. It's like the death by a thousand cuts, um, and, and we'll get into all the details of that, but. You know, it's certainly habitat driven, but even at that level, there's umpteen different things that led to the quail's decline habitat wise. It wasn't just one thing. Um, and, and you see it from East Coast all the way to West Texas, um, different different circumstances and some different habitat types. But it, but it all comes down to the things we're going to talk about today on this podcast. Yeah, I know. uh Man, you can you can even hear some random thoughts or ideas with quail. People in in places of the country where are not quail. I said I said quail. I meant turkeys. Turkey numbers. Uh, you know, the state department's trading turkeys for rattlesnakes in Texas. Um, there's so many just crazy crazy thoughts that and conspiracy theorist ideas out there that. Um, Really, there's so many different things. Like you said, death of a thousand cuts, and I think we had somebody on our other podcast that used that with uh, used that with turkey. So it's a very complex idea or a very complex problem that I think with solving any any problem, uh, first you have to be aware that there is a problem, and if you think that there's two reasons why the quail are are declining or have left. Um, start thinking more because there's a lot more problems than just two. And so we're going to jump in. I guess I should, before we really jump into it, I should say where Matt's at this week. He's uh, consulting in Virginia yesterday, and he's flying back today. Um, And then he leaves for vacation this week. So I'm not sure if you're going to hear from him over the next three, four podcasts, two podcasts, but uh, we're going to be here anyway, talking same thing, Habitat. Kyle, how do you want to kick this off? Well, I think we need to set the stage for folks about kind of the the history and the actual the increase in quail. A lot of people probably don't realize, but um, you know, we equate this this decrease in quail, and depending on where you're at in the country, it's most places it's the eighty ninety percent reduction in in the quail population since the nineteen forties or fifties, but that 19, at least here in the Midwest, that 1940s, 50s level quail population was actually higher 
than it would have been, say, in the 1800s. So we actually are comparing to kind of an artificial high time. So let's set the stage a little bit with with how all this started and, and when we actually increased, when quail numbers really blew up. And and here in the Midwest, it would have been uh, in the early, you know, 1900s, going, going up, all the way up into that 1940s and 50s. Quail numbers exploded, and that's because – you know, back in 1800s here in the Midwest, we had lots of expanses of prairie that would have had a lot of prairie chickens, um, prairie grouse species, or depending if you were further north, sharp tails or whatever. Um, but we we didn't have adequate woody escape cover. So there was large expanses of prairie that had quail, but they would have been isolated more to where there was you know, that woody shrubby component um, closer down to drainages and, and places like that where where the fire didn't, you know, wasn't as effective at, at keeping all the woody component at bay. Um, they just, they have to have that. So, so as some of that prairie got broken up and was settled, um, that actually benefited quail. Um, and then think about like here in the Ozarks, I, I just spent the last week, I had to, for work, I was over in the Eminence area. And uh, they talked about Leo Dry putting setters in his canoe. He was a big, um, bought a ton of ground over in the, in the central Ozarks over there. He would have his setters in the canoe going down the current river and then pull up on the banks and quail hunt. Wow. I mean, if you've ever been down the current river, that's hard to believe because it's solid timber. I mean, I got claustrophobic over there because I couldn't ever get out of the timber. Um, so, you know, there was this period of when, when that got settled for one, you know, it was, it was some Savannah or, or Oak woodland, uh, pine woodland stuff, but the quail actually increased because people came in and cut the forest. It got cut over really hard, harder what, than it should have been. Wasn't, uh, South central Missouri home of like one of the largest sawmills in the country at that point. Right. Um, during yes. the Industrial Revolution, they were they were cutting cutting timber, throwing it in the river, sinking it, and then, I guess floating it down the river to the railroad, and then shipping it east. Right. So that that imagine that happening from you know the east coast where Matt was yesterday from Virginia, <laughs> all the way back through Missouri. It would have started on the east coast a lot sooner, but a bunch of timber got cut over. Well. So you went from maybe some quail in a in a kind of a woodland setting to they cut it so hard it turned into, you know, grass and, and forbs and brush country. And the quail exploded in those situations as well. Same as breaking open some of that prairie and, and breaking it up into smaller units. So mm. it actually benefited we what we call the new ground effect. Uh, I think we, Frank and I both talked about this in various aspects, but you get new ground effect when you take something that's really not hospitable for quail. You create quail habitat, so it meets all their needs. You've got grass, forbs, bare ground, and, and shrubby cover. Well, the quail explode because they, they're rapid reproducers, and it takes a while for the predators to fill in to that new ground. So you get this immediate spike in quail. And then a few years afterwards, you know, the predators kind of fill in all the gaps, and, and then it tapers off that, that early peak, you know, kind of comes down and then you plateau at some level. Um, 
So breaking out this new grass, think about these small farms got settled. You know, hedgerows were planted. Those were, there was a reason people planted hedgerows. They were living fences. They were used as windbreaks and fences to keep cattle in, uh, like in the 1930s. Um, they, they planted a lot of those in the Midwest because after the Dust Bowl uh, to, to act as windbreaks. But they also used them the way young hedge grows, and it's so gnarly and so fun. And they didn't have to build rock wall fences anymore or try to build more expensive, you know, buy stuff to build build fences with. Um, farms, everybody had a variety of livestock back then. You had pastures of native vegetation for your livestock. And that's where the quail would have been nesting. Everybody had a few cattle and they had, you know, maybe they had some sheep or goats. and and But then they also had some small grain fields. You know, they had a couple dairy cows. Well, so they had, they would raise wheat and think about like people used to shock their wheat. You see the pictures of where they, you know, Wichita, Wichita State Shockers, the, that's their team mascot. It's this bundle of wheat. That's how they used to gather their crops. And this was all to feed their livestock. So you had all this broken up stuff, which actually helped quail um, along the way. Think about how low the predator numbers were. So, uh, raptors were first began being protected in 1918. Um, you know, back in the uh, depression, lots of people trapped. I mean, piles of people trapped. We sold way back in the 1940s. We used to sell uh, Missouri Department of Conservation would sell thousands of fur dealer permits. That was for buyers, let alone trappers. Um, people not only sold fur bears, but you know, in the depression, they were eating a lot of them. Uh, yeah. Prairie country, you, you didn't have any raccoons in prairie landscapes. You didn't, cause you didn't have trees in prairie landscapes. There was no raccoon den habitat. I've talked to people that are still alive now that say, Oh, I remember as a kid, I mean, if somebody caught a raccoon, it was, you went around town and showed everybody just didn't mm. have them. Um, so you know, there was this stretch where all of this played in perfect for the quail, and they, they actually really spiked in numbers. So then we, we got to that period of, oh, it's just nothing. Well, there's quail everywhere. Nobody thinks anything of it. Um, you know, in the 40s and 50s, it's great. There's They're just abundant. I mean, you can just umpteen stories of people walking from their house, and they walk a quarter mile, and they could bust, you know, four, five, six coveys, and you hear those stories all the time from the yeah. old timers. So. Wow. So I'm picturing, you know, timber country during that, during that stage of, of the country being, uh, moving forward. Most of the timber country was getting cut really, really hard, um, to make lumber to ship out to the, to the cities. And so the, you were cutting timber out way, way more aggressive than probably a lot of the cutting is today. Um, I imagine there wasn't a whole lot of planting of trees in, let's say, kind of loblolly pine plantation, uh, more like natural regrowth, I would assume. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so have you the had the technology a, or the knowledge back then. The, yep. diver, the diversity of tree species that grew back was much more conducive for providing uh, uh, a, a healthier landscape. And then in the open country, you said something that kind of keyed in with me is um, I've heard a couple phrases uh, or a couple 
couple uh, reasons why there's more trees. And uh, somebody told me once that it was in the manure that all the cows were eating, eating all the tree seeds and then moving west and and uh, in their manure they were spreading the tree seeds. I didn't really buy into it. Um, but at the same time, there was a uh, an increase of trees moving out into the prairie, into the open landscapes. And I think a lot of that, like you said, was people were planting hedgerows and once you start planting the hedgerows, then you give birds the ability to somewhere to set. So when they do eat seeds somewhere east, they can go and set in those trees, and it just slowly over time inches forward, inches forward, inches forward. And by that, I mean trees inching west. And with seeds being deposited by birds, probably just kept moving west and west and west, and now we have a lot of trees. Yeah, absolutely. The the manure thing was right. It just wasn't in the cattle necessarily. It was yeah, the birds. That birds. Did. That's and right. Wind of some trees, you know, spread yep. with the blowing of the seeds. But absolutely, trees beget trees. Yeah. If you don't have trees or fences in the first place, there's nowhere for the birds to sit. Yeah. And if there's nowhere for the birds to sit, they don't drop seeds to the ground. You can see this. Drive down any fence line, and where do all the trees pop up? Right along the fence, because that's where the birds sit. That's right. Um, here's a question for you. Um, I know you guys have talked about it. Uh, when you look at trees in an open landscape, you look at them as raptor perches. So if there wasn't the amount of trees that there is today in the open country, would there be, there wouldn't be the ability for a lot more raptors to be out in that open landscape, correct? Correct. So we've increased the raptor nesting habitat by, I don't know, a thousand fold, probably. Yeah. So we basically flip-flopped. We basically take take and we go, this habitat is really great for quail. Flip it over, 180. Now it's really great for raptors. Yep, absolutely. And, you and know, I'm not raccoons. saying we should, yes, raccoons, possums, you name it. And certainly not advocating, you know, we've talked about the food chain being so complicated. You know, hawks are protected, uh, owls are protected. And if we shoot those, they, you know, they're eating snakes, which are also a nest predator. It's a complicated deal. Yeah. But back in the day, in the early 1900s, there wasn't near as many hawks. And if they messed around someone's chickens, those hawks got killed. <laughs> so that before they got federally protected uh they were they were picked on by the public because people are trying to make a living you know you can't afford to lose some chickens in 1915 times were a little tough back then yeah yeah i know i've heard my grandpa talk about raccoon eating raccoons and possums uh groundhogs and yep. uh pretty much whatever whatever was moving um and they shot it they ate it and now yep. it's far from it yeah oh man i i know it's definitely it's a very complicated thing let's talk a little bit about um how cattle you, you mentioned the cattle let's talk a little bit about how the ranges or their management has changed based on when numbers were so great and now when they're so bad Right. Well, so, you know, cattle, at least in the western half of the United States, were, were completely operated differently. Well, they would have been all across the country, but you dealt with native forages, first of all, back in those days. We didn't have all these introduced forages. 
um, and native forages. If you listen to the conservation grazing podcast, you know, we here in the Midwest, the tall grass prairie, mixed grass prairie, even short grass prairie, you, you can't graze it down to a pool table every year. It doesn't come back. So people figured out real quick, hey, we got to graze this, you know, correctly, um, or we're not going to have anything for future years to graze. So the vegetation in itself required uh, more care and more maintenance uh, of the herd, but also just sheer numbers. I mean, let's be honest, our, our cattle numbers are you know, multi times higher than they were back in the early 19, mid 1900s. And so is our human population. We have more people to feed. So we've increased our row crop acres. We've increased our cattle numbers. That's not going to go away. We, we feed the world and the world keeps growing. So, um, and then how that went across, you know, there was cattle drives still. I actually manage an area, a prairie in Cedar County, Missouri, um, that has a spring on it. Uh, and I found in some of the notes were cattle drives that would come from down in central Arkansas that would drive them to Kansas city would stop at this prairie and water their cattle. Wow. So, you know, there was, there was some of that going on where it was, especially out West, it was open range or moving. Yep. Where you were grazing, you're just passing through. So very similar to what the bison herds would be like. That's right. So, so an area may get really beat up if hundreds, thousands of head of cattle came through, you know, mm-hmm. but then a half mile to the West, it didn't get touched that year. Um, so you really had this mosaic across the landscape that we don't see anymore. Now we keep animals on the landscape, sometimes the same pasture year round and yep. introduced forages. It's just all different. I think that's, that's the thing that just is, Oh, such a such a hard thing to present to people when we talk about um cattle forages if we're just talking cattle and we're like okay well let's let's talk about the forages that they eat or that they're given the opportunity to eat if you if you drive in if you drive in any direction from Missouri you go east you go north you go west you go south you're going to run across probably a pretty dominated landscape of non-native pastures. Now, yeah. there's a reason why we like Oklahoma and Kansas, especially the Flint Hills and parts of Nebraska and parts of Texas, because they still have a very uh, big base of, of uh, native grasses or native just plant communities. But you go north, smooth brome is a dominating factor. You go south, it could be Bahia grass or coastal Bermuda or even Johnson grass you go east or stay right here at home it's probably going to be tall fescue and orchard grass mix and uh it's just a very very hard thing to swallow when you when you think about trying to make something more productive for uh quail and going boy we sure have an uphill battle yeah you know the grass is always greener right so all these a lot of these introduced forages we Somebody got it in their mind, oh, this has got to be better than what we have. And so we brought it in and it filled a niche. Maybe it grew for this month that this other didn't grow or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But most of the time we 
<laughs> we screw up the system when we bring in something that shouldn't be here. I think the the thing that really, really is irritating about tall fescue to me is when you watch the old videos or you hear anybody talk about the miracle grass when it was introduced is that yeah. pretty quickly into that conversation, you'll hear them say something like, it was a grass that you could graze in the dirt and it'd keep coming back. Yep. And it's almost like, I wish you could go back to that I guess it was the, probably the 50s when it was really coming on strong. You just want to say, time out, time out. Wait, why do you want to graze it into the dirt again? Even though you could, why do you want to? Yeah, yeah. And, and didn't people, have to, people didn't have to know their operation. They didn't have to worry about stocking rates. It didn't matter. But, yeah. Yep. Oh, That's right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the fence lines and how they've changed. Yeah, so, and, and that, let me step into the next era of this, I guess, you know, so then the, the decline starts and it starts east to west, of course, because the, the land to the east was settled a lot sooner. Um, but we have this, this list and we'll go through a lot of it, but, um, and then the decline started around here in the Midwest, probably, I mean, all of Leopold even started talking about it in the forties, I think, of uh, saying, Hey, look out, <laughs> things are, things are changing. Um, fifties were still great in the Midwest for quail. Even the sixties were great. Seventies were great. But if you look back at the data, significant declines had happened from the 1950s to the 1970s. Um, so you mentioned the fence lines. So here's an example. Back in the day, uh, we didn't have steel T posts, something quite simple. People don't think about They hadn't been invented yet. And people went out and they cut posts out of their hedgerows and so the hedgerows stayed you know scrubby uh, they'd have re-sprouts and and they never let them grow into big giant hedge trees that you couldn't put your arm around uh, your arms around they never had you know 36 inch dbh osage orange what we call hedge trees they never got that big because people cut fence posts out of them and they sold them or they used them on their own property well, then here comes the invention of the steel T-post. Well, I don't have to go out and run a chainsaw anymore, other than people use them for corner posts around here still sometimes. It's starting to come uh, back, it seems like. Yeah, a lot of people, of course, are using steel pipe too. But, yeah, there's some that still use them for corners. But, you know, line posts, steel T-posts, it's a lot easier. You can stretch them tighter, you know, get the wire tied on tighter and, and so all of a sudden, what do you know? Hedgerows start growing up. The next thing you know, they're, you got trees that are 40, 50 foot tall and giant diameter. Well, that's no longer any good for quail. That's now a raptor perch. Or it a, doesn't have any, or anything raccoon, low growing. Raccoon runway. Yeah. Yep. Gives a place for a raccoon can hunt along that and climb up a tree if a coyote or a dog gets after him. And so it's escape cover for the predators and. It doesn't function anymore as shrubby cover for a, for a covey of quail. So. And, and I think that's w- something that's really changed. Um, man, What what yep. you either have fence lines that are grown up and really, really tall trees, or you have fence lines that have been ripped out to plant ditch to ditch. Yep, that's right. And so let's step into that. You know, so, so what does happen over this 20, 30, 40, 50-year period? Uh, you know, a whole list of things. It starts with, of course, urban sprawl. I mean, anytime a neighborhood goes up, we've lost everything. Yep. And that, again, we, we admit our population has increased. It's going to continue. That's not going to change. Yep. 
Um, but think about things like uh, farm machinery and their efficiency, and that continues today. Yep. Uh, I mean, humans are always going to try to make things more efficient. We want them more fuel efficient. We want them more time efficient. I already said there's more and more people across the world, and we're always going to be looking to grow more food. We want more bushels per acre production, right? We want our crops to be more productive. we got to feed more people. Um, and that also increases the you know, dollars per acre that that farmer can make off of that crop or off of those cattle. Well, so a combine header, for example, back, they used to shock wheat. I already talked about, I mean, Uh old school before we had combines, then we invent machines and we've got combines to do this work. Okay. Well, obviously that made farming a way more efficient, way cleaner. People could farm a lot bigger acres, but then take it. The headers uh, used to cut wheat in western Kansas, western Nebraska, all those western or central states and, and the pheasant range used to just cut the, the head off of the wheat because the they couldn't process all that chaff through the through the machine. It was just too much so that you would try to set your header just just right and it would leave knee high wheat stubble. And in western Kansas, that's where the pheasants nested. Um, it was perfect. There was enough heights to conceal a hen. So they would nest out there right after wheat harvest, sometimes during, before wheat harvest, you know, and hope that the tires didn't run over them. But a lot of them would nest right after wheat harvest, which was late June. So they would have rest of the summer to, to be successful. Well, along comes this, you know, hey, we figured out how to make this more successful. Uh, we can sort through Um, more material and run it out the back of the combine. And so next thing you know, Western Kansas, and this happened, oh, maybe in the, I think this happened in the 80s. They're cutting wheat stubble ankle high. There's nothing left. (laughs) And then a lot of times now they're double cropping it. So then once they cut it, they're dropping beans in behind it. That's right. So, yeah, you're leaving stubble that's ankle high. Even if you're not double cropping, there's just nothing left for a pheasant. So that's just one example of, and, you know, we can, list goes on and on about how efficient machinery's gotten. Oh, man. And that's I have a, great, but it, it kills us on habitat. Yeah, I have a uh, a great story I, I've mentioned before in the podcast, but uh, at my, at the Prairie Hollow property where we lease and manage, uh, <clears throat> we had a, a bottom field that got planted in corn and the, you couldn't get a combine in there. So the guy's picking it with like a 1950 or 62 row picker. And, yep. uh, man, there were so many ears laying out on the ground when he got done that it was just like, did he, did, did he get any corn out of this or did he just <laughs> cut it and leave it on the ground? Yeah. And so <laughs> pretty yep. awesome for us. And it's yep. just like, yep. when you think back at, at their, at their, uh, if, if a lot of the equipment was like that, Man, no wonder that no wonder the wildlife still did well behind crop fields because there's food everywhere. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And well, and so it's not just the machinery. Let's think about um, the technology in our seed. Right. We we've developed plants, soybeans. You just mentioned double cropping. We have engineered soybeans that are so drought tolerant that now we can drill soybeans into wheat stubble july 3rd and still get 40 bushel beans that fall i mean there was a reason nobody double cropped back in 1960 
because we didn't we didn't have soybeans that could do that in western Kansas where they get 16 inches of rain. Yeah. You know, now we can they can plant soybeans and if they get one rain to get them to sprout and they need one rain about bloom time and they'll produce and you can have a harvestable, you know, um, money making crop and planting them that late. It's just crazy and it's great. Again, we need that kind of technology, but it does not favor wildlife. Yeah. Well, was, one thing you mentioned prior to the talking of crops was urbanization. And one thing that, man, I, I live right in the edge of town. Um, I'm actually outside right now. So if you're hearing birds in the background, that's what you're, that's, that's why. Um, but uh, so I stare out west and watch the sun go down and there's cattle grazing. There's little, there's fence rows that, uh, let's see here. There's about a half a dozen big clumps of multiflora rows. Um, but one thing that I see a lot kind of bouncing along out through there is, uh, cats. Yeah. What, sure. would, you, what would you, you know, pound for pound, if you're gonna, if you're gonna say, maybe this is an unfair question, but pound for pound, would you say that if, if you were to just drop these two animals out there, which one's a more vicious killer, a, like a feral cat, um, a ditch tiger, um, or a raccoon, which one do you think's a better predator, uh, meaning kills more quail between those two? Oh yeah. I'd say, <laughs> yeah, a cat, as far as adult birds, a cat any day of the week. Yeah. Um, raccoons certainly, you know, hard on nests, but, but raccoons eat so many different things. I mean, they'll eat berries and yeah. But yeah, Feral, I think Audubon had a deal several years ago about, and it was crazy, the the billions of birds lost due to feral cats. Yeah. Not just feral, even house you know, cats. House yeah. cats that let out half even the day. Even little gray and, princess eats her fair share of birds. Yeah, goes to the neighbor's feeder and bird feeder, you know, and figures mm-hmm. out. But, yeah, no, it was billions of birds lost a year, they thought, of neotropical migrants. Crazy numbers. I don't remember. but Yeah, I know there was a study stuff. that was done in Chicago where they they uh, were studying native birds, and they were significantly lower, but then all of a sudden they started to expand, and they started having more and more birds, and it was in a um, correlation with the, the, the increase of coyotes in, in Chicago killing the feral cats. yeah um yeah and and so you know there's just so many different things that come into play um one thing that i've talked a lot with a couple other people uh that are kind of in this realm of land management is the idea of the 40s 50s 60s farmers who really relied on plowing and disking and if you look, kind of look at how they did things, there was oftentimes a lot of fallow disc one year, but didn't get planted the next year, or it got grazed the next year. So there was a lot more bare ground, but not completely bare ground like you see in a lot of, uh, not so much now, but um, you would see it a lot in places with the chisel plow was a big friend of the farmer. Um, what's your take on that? Oh, you bet. Um you know, in in different parts of the country, the the invention of some of this advancement in equipment has actually helped quail 
um, and some ground nesting birds, uh, the more drier, arid climates. Um, but yeah, the, certainly there was more um, rotation. The the number the acres of corn and beans. Um, I was at a workshop a while back, and the, the acres of corn and beans have just skyrocketed in the last 50 years compared to what it was historically. You know, nobody in Missouri anymore grows Milo. Yeah. And some of those crops that used to be grown, it's, it's all corn. That was a big yeah. one too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some of that, but yeah, sure. I mean, they were. What about cane? Not, Do you hear much about not to get distracted? But I've heard a lot of the old times around me talk about uh, planting like sorghum cane, basically to make molasses. Right. Yep. This stuff that we don't use anymore. I mean, those no. markets are now a niche market and it just doesn't, doesn't exist. There's bigger money in these other, these other products. Yeah. And it, it's not only what they're raising. I, well, let me back up. I mentioned, you know, out West, the invention of no-till equipment has actually been beneficial for some ground nesting birds to where they quit. The, the, the land is so arid yeah, And when they would disc it, they were just further drying out the situation. And they found out, hey, once they could start no-tilling, you know, that they could quit drying out this ground that only gets 16 inches of rain. So at least they leave a little bit of residual and stubble in some of the ground out in western parts of Kansas, Nebraska. So that's actually been a benefit. Um, and, of course, soil health and everything else you guys already talked about. But, but think about it's not just those how they plant those fields and I already touched on you know say the genetic engineering of, of soybeans for example but think about invention of broad spectrum herbicide roundup ready corn and beans oh I mean, that's man. one of the reasons we have tons of corn and beans because we have roundup ready corn and beans it's easy compared to you know back in the 1940s we didn't have broad spectrum herbicides so there was a lot more weeds in the crop fields Yep. And those weeds is what was attracting the insects, and that so these crop fields actually made pretty good brood habitat. That's where the birds would take their young and they'd feed all summer. Yeah, that's long gone. And and add to it, what about you know neonicotinoids? So now we're treating seed um, neonics. We're treating it with an insecticide. So as the plant grows, if an insect eats on it it actually kills the insect. So not only do we not have weeds out there, but even if there's gonna be insects on the soybean plant or the corn plant or the Milo plant itself, they're going to die. So, and hmm. don't know for quail, people are looking at this, but you know, is there direct effects of that? What, what few bugs do make it in those fields? If you're eating those bugs that are, haven't died yet, but they're poisoned, one would reason that can't be healthy. Yeah. Um, so, so are you an advocate of non-GMOs? <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough deal, man. Yeah. I mean, we're trying to feed, you know, I get it. The farmer's trying to raise, you know, 100 bushel corn, 200 bushel corn. If you're, you know, down here, 100 bushel corn's great. In North Missouri, 200 bushel corn's what you're looking at. And I, you, you just can't do it with with old school stuff. It's just not going to happen, but yep. dang it, man. If, if you look at the map of the native bee decline, the pollinator decline, it mirror images the map showing the increase 
in the use of Roundup Ready crops from the Dakotas right down through Missouri and Kansas. It's pretty yeah. amazing. So, mm. yeah, again, I mean, just another example, time yeah, after one thing the... after thing after thing stacked against these quail. It's yep. not just one thing. It's all this stuff. Yep. We talked a little bit already about the predator increase. Um, yeah. And both domestic and, <laughs> and wild um, yeah. predator increase. Well, well, let me give you some real numbers here. So, I mean, we've we've been running surveys across Missouri, the Department of Conservation has, and since 1977 until um, I think these numbers go to, to mid 2000 or, you know, 20 teens, we're still running them. We've had a fourfold increase. So 1977 to say 2017, fourfold increase in raccoons, fourfold increase in possums, 20 times as many bobcats, 1977 to 2017. I'm not even going back to 1940. So, I mean, those numbers, <laughs> so I'm not blaming it all on predators either, but. Let's put this all in context. So we've lost habitat, right? We have larger, larger crop fields. We've taken out tree rows, or which I don't like, but taking out old hedgerows that used to be scrubby. They're no yeah. longer scrubby, right? We've lost all this habitat. We've expanded crop fields. The cropping is more efficient. It's cleaner. Um, there's less weeds in it. So now the crop fields aren't providing brood habitat. We have less native pastures. We have a bunch of exotic pastures that are being mostly overgrazed. Um, so the habitat is reduced down to a fraction of what it was 50, 60 years ago. And now I'm telling you, we've increased raccoons and possums fourfold and bobcats 20fold in Missouri. Which are well, utilizing that same area that the quail are yeah. forced to use. Right. The, I got news for you. The fourfold increase in, in raccoons, well, they're not patrolling the 200-acre soybean field. There's nothing out there for them to eat. There. Yeah. So when we had 20 nests, let's say, 20 quail nests across a half section of, of ground, of habitat, back in 1940. And that half section of, of usable habitat is now 30 acres of usable habitat and 290 acres of unusable habitat. But we have four times as many raccoons and possums as we used to have. They're all packed in the 30 acres. So now instead of having 20 nests across that, we have two nests. And Back when we had 20 nests, if a raccoon found a couple, three of them, eh, big deal, right? Whatever. We got 17 more. Now we have two nests of quail, and the raccoon finds one of them. Well, we just lost 50% of our potential production. So now all of a sudden predation matters. It didn't used to matter because it was on the, it was all related to scale. So oh. not the predator's fault. It's just compounded like everything else on this small, smaller, you know, postage stamp that the quail are forced to live in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that's not good. Definitely makes no. you think, well, I mean, you force them to use this little bitty area. You already know that the population is going to be down because of that. And then you're going to give them a, a gauntlet that they have to survive every single day. Well, if you can dodge yeah. the raccoon 
and the and the bobcats and the possums, and uh, well, then we're going to throw in uh, feral cats as well, or just yeah. <laughs> just house cats in yeah. general. Um, yeah. Good luck. Yeah. And yeah. then a big black rat snake comes and eats all your eggs anyway. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And, and for that matter, then you throw an in invasive species. I don't, I, I don't know if I can yeah. find any good hard data that, I mean, it would depend on region, but, you know, I mean, list the region and I'll, and I'll point you in a direction of what I believe would be one of the top three um, invasive species for that area. And so like, you know, you talked about your post stamp. Let's say, just picture a football field. Now we've now we've forced them down to a to the size of your phone, and within that phone, there's more predators. And then also, um, by the way, the understory is filled with multifloral rose or Johnson grass or list any invasive you want um, yep. that doesn't attract nearly as many insects as our native plants do. Yep. Oh, yep. that, it gets really, really spooky at that point because you're like, well, I don't know if we can ever turn this ship around. Yeah, no. Um, well, and, th- and then we'll go to the one of the big ones. Yeah, I was just going to say my my all time favorite because I'm a pyromaniac. I mean, I burn several thousand acres a year for my job. Yeah. Let's so, get it. yeah, reduction in burning. Um, Smokey the Bear. Great idea completely misinterpreted by the public. Um, Smokey the bear was to prevent wildfires. Um, we were losing, and still do, you know, out West. Um, and that's a whole nother podcast we should do, but um, <laughs> thousands of acres of, of forest fires and it merchantable timber was getting burned up. So, you know, it was a bad deal. We just celebrated Smokey's 75th birthday. So Smokey's been around for a while. Well, it was highly effective. The problem was the idea was, hey, you know, prevent forest fires, accidental fires. Well, not prevent fire. All fire is bad, but that's how it got interpreted. Yeah. People got scared to burn. And this isn't as simple as Smokey the Bear. It goes with urban sprawl, right? So there's more people across the landscape. And people got scared to burn. They misinterpreted Smokey and lawsuits, um, you know, attorneys being able to sue their neighbor because they burned up their magically. If you burn down somebody's shed, you know, that was a a $200 shed, it turned into a $20,000 cabin uh, when you ended up in a courtroom. So anyway, we have all these acres that used to be, Native pasture, uh, you really see it in western Nebraska. It's really disheartening, and you see all the cedar encroachment. Losing a lot of native vegetation, tall grass, and, and mixed grass prairie because of the lack of fire. Um, yeah. I remember hunting some fields in southeast Kansas that were scrubby, had you know scrubby uh, hedge trees and just kind of a brushy, what we call old field habitat. Yep. Well, those are now forest, and they're they're crappy forests to boot. That's the worst part. They're hedged, locust, cedar. They're not even merchantable forest. But and that's where the whole turkey thing comes in. So we might as well just jump on that grenade right now. <laughs> Turkeys eating the quail, right? Everybody saw the turkey numbers spike in the, especially in the Midwest. But this has happened 
all over the country. I was up in Wisconsin a couple of years ago working on a project, and they were griping about their grouse numbers are going down. Rough grouse are going down. Turkey numbers are just skyrocketing, like we saw back in the 90s, early 2000s. Yep. And I'm sitting in the cafe with all the old men. We ate at the same cafe every morning for seven days straight. Got to know some of these old men. And dang turkeys are eating all the grouse. It's the same story no matter where you go. Here it was the turkeys are eating the quail. Yep. Well, no. We let scrubby pastures turn into forest. And guess what? Turkeys started living there. And quail quit living there. It's just a... You know, it was a happy coincidence. It had nothing to do. One did not cause the other. Um, oh. So, yeah, just there's there's a fix for that. But there's a lot of people have still have fear of burning. I know we talk about it on this podcast and you and Matt talk about it all the time. And we practice it in our real lives. Um, it, But there's a lot of concern. People need to go learn how to do it. And, and be comfortable with it, you know, because there is some liability there. We don't yep. want people just going and being reckless with fire. Um, you need to know what you're doing. But there, there's opportunities out there. Most states offer some type of burn workshops and, and those kind of things. And there's to starting to be some states really start to shift. I don't know if there's a way we could piggyback on, you know, increase of tick-borne illnesses and say, well, we can lower tick populations by a burn uh a burn yeah. plan, you know, yeah. um, maybe there's something we can piggyback on there and be like, we could, we could point the ignorant finger and say, um, well, there's no more, the quail are declining because there's ticks. And if we want to get rid of ticks, we got to burn. <laughs> maybe yeah, we yeah. could make a stupid statement like that and give people on board with it. One of the worst no things kidding. about our society is we don't have a memory for, I mean, we have a horrible memory. Um, yeah. and so we just tend to, forget things that oh you know fire was pretty crucial for this landscape and Smokey the bear yeah it was only really trying to stop certain fires he wasn't trying to stop all fire and ah yeah well and and this landscape where we're at and you know it evolved with fire yeah fire was a natural disturbance and we've talked about that before talked about that with the conservation grazing that's a natural disturbance and when you remove something natural from the system the system can't function the same it's just a fact it's never going to function the same so um, that's what we're all about obviously that's what land legacy is about is working with nature and fire is a part of that for sure so you know let's talk a little bit about some final concerns before we start to try to give a glimmer of hope well i've already touched on it but you know the population continues to expand um, technology is going to keep moving ahead and I mean worldwide we're going to keep feeding the world uh, we're going to try to figure out how to grow 250 300 bushel corn um, and we'll do it uh, we're the, that's not that train isn't stopping yep um, so we're going to continue to get better with our technology and, and yield production overall and and so that's scary um, makes me pretty nervous as to where wildlife fits into that because the human race is going to rank out more important, obviously, uh, yeah. than the than the wildlife. And, and if we can't feed people, um, 
both with animal products and plant products and uses our plant products to feed some of our animals and all, all that works. Um, yep. Well, here's something I'm going to, I'm going to give some thoughts here. You've kind of ran this podcast cause it's right in your wheelhouse. So I'm going to give some thoughts here. Yep. Um, yep. you know, it's, it's interesting times that we're in here. 2020, 2020 has been a very, uh, pretty bad year for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's, it's spooky times. It's, it's weird times. That's about the best word I can come up with for 2020 is weird. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people that I think are kind of reevaluating the way that they're going to raise their family or the way they're going to live their life or where they're going to live their life. And, um, you know, urbanization, living in cities, living in towns has been kind of the growing trend um, with work and and people are working from they're going to their cubicle, they're going to their office, they're going to various places all in town and cities. And um, through this whole quarantine pandemic, I think uh, with all the Zoom conferences and all the <laughs> teleconferencing going on, I think there's some businesses realizing that, you know what, maybe we don't need to pay for a brick-and-mortar storefront. Our yep. employees can work from home. Therefore, employees don't necessarily have to live in town. And not only that, but there's a lot of people that are, there's no meat shortage. Let's just be honest. There's not a meat shortage. There's a, um, there's a shortage in the ability of getting meat from the farmer to the store. Yeah. There's Um, a processing shortage. There's there's not a a meat shortage. Yes. And I think there's a lot of people, I know this from the real estate side where there's a lot of people that are starting to evaluate the idea of having a smaller acreage place, um, yep. kind of that homestead type setup that they can be more self-sufficient. They can have a yep. few cows. They can have a few chickens. They can have a few pigs. They can have a garden. And what are we describing, Kyle? It sounds a lot like the uh, the little bitty farms that happened during the mid-1900s. Yep. Um, that's right. And I'll be, I'll be curious to see how... Um, real estate markets go from 2020 into the future, the near future of if we see some more people trying to do these small hobby farms, uh, more self-sufficient DIY type farming, um, because maybe, just maybe, I know that uh, we're going to, I'm trying not to assume too much here, but a lot of these people that I meet in the real estate side of the world that are you know, wanting to do the off-grid kind of get out on their own, make their own living, have their own stuff, that are also very environmental friendly. So they're not huge in herbicides. They're not huge in wanting to have a big monster farm. Um, they're very much a eco-friendly person. And so if they can figure out ways to do um, holistic-type management, that's what they want to do. They want to replicate nature. And I'm hoping fingers crossed that we'll see this happen and uh you know land is pretty cheap in the ozarks shameless plug if that's something you want give us a call (laughs) shoot (laughs) us an email we're in real estate i mean we can find some farms around here for a thousand bucks an acre and uh and so you know it's a lot cheaper taxes are a lot cheaper and nobody's gonna nobody's gonna bug you about what you got going on in your farm so um that's something i'm really 
I'm I'm going to be really interested to see what happens in my lifetime with this whole pandemic because most of us have never experienced anything like this. And so there might be some kind of a big shift in, in the way people do life. Yeah, and you know, before this pandemic, there was in the in the hunting world, there was a handful, you know, this was, I don't know what percentage, a small percentage, but there was a little uptick, uh, not only in bird hunting, um, deer hunting. Uh, there was this movement of, of folks, and it was typically kind of millennial age folks. Yep. That were getting into it for natural food. Yep. All natural, no hormones. So that movement had already kind of kicked in. And this just what you just addressed, you know, maybe solidifies that for some folks of, hey, <laughs> I don't want to be dependent on the store. Yeah. Um, I actually was just, just in Springfield, Missouri today and glanced over at the meat aisle and there was ground beef was six forty nine a pound. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, it's. I'm pretty glad that I've got an entire freezer full of deer meat and turkey breasts and crappie fillets, and I'm not going to pay six forty nine a pound for ground beef. But you know, there's a lot of folks that are relying on that and don't have any choice. Yep, and I think they're going to be doing their darndest to change that soon. Yep, I think there'll be a percent that will. Um, obviously, we know there's a large percent that are. I, I was thinking of when you were given that the, that speech there of, of your podcast about consumers and producers. And yeah. the reality is, you know, there's still going to be a lot of consumers across the world. That's right. Um, and, yep. and Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska farmers are still going to be producers. That's right. And that's just, that's just how it is. It, um, yep. But yes, at some scale, it will be interesting to see how many of these people kind of start saying, man, maybe I ought to prepare a little better for handle some of this for myself. Yep. Yep. Um, the, the the preppers don't look so crazy to some people nowadays. No, <laughs> After they don't. this pandemic, people are like, huh, maybe those people aren't nuts. That's right. You know, I feel a little bit about Y2K was right in my wheelhouse, man. I was 13 years old full of full of uh ready to just take in the world and i remember my parents my mom really stacking the i mean she was stacking the house full of non-perishable items um for y2k and and then it was like it happened and nothing happened nothing happened yep (laughs) and it was like now what are we gonna do with all this stuff and now here we are and it's like you know what probably is a good idea to at least have some sort of supply because you never know yep. when all of a sudden you know it's it's one thing to think well i'll go and hunt public ground or i'll go fishing um, and i'll catch my fish and i'll kill some kill some animals and that's where i'll get all my food and i'll grow a garden and you know whatever but then when they shut boat ramps down and they shut public land down yeah uh-oh. Or they shut the gas station down. So how are you going to get to the public land? Because yeah. you have no fuel in your vehicle. You bet. Yeah. Get a horse. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> here we are, and and it's it's different times, man. It's just a it's a yeah. weird world we're living in right now. And I think, man, life yeah. could be so much. You could really do some awesome things if you had some. If you maximize your wildlife potential on your farm, and then at the same time you had you were using 
some cattle and and uh, you were using just livestock to really work with them, where you could have a you could have a pretty good supply of uh, renewable resources right there in your backyard. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Next year, yeah, you think back to your grandma canning everything out of the garden and you know having green garden green beans for the whole year and tomatoes and everything else and just man it makes a lot of sense and not many people do that anymore not many no they don't no they don't so let's talk a little bit about habitat that can be done um yeah to really help the quail in this day and age i mean that's yep. that's the big question what can i do right so i mean we just gave you an hour of doom and gloom i hate to be that guy right but <laughs> i mean the reality is it's we just gave a it, sermon on hellfire and rimstone right there. Yeah. Now well, the we're going to quail. Now I we're going to have been, to save our soul right here. Yeah, it's been nothing but downhill for the poor little quail for a long time, and it's not just the quail; it's the rough grouse when you go north. There's, you know, yeah, it's the you name it. The turkeys are doing it now across a lot of the country. Um, You've got CWD but, with white-tailed deer, so that, places like Wisconsin, right. it's like, yep. woo, what animal is doing good? Well. Predators are doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but hey, there is hope, you know. Um, we have more uh, programs, uh, both state and federal cost share programs, than ever before. Um, the, a lot of this stuff that didn't start out, CRP is a perfect example. That started out as a, a surplus crop program. We had too much crops, and the prices were getting too low. Um, and also uh, a soil conservation. We had some people farming some pretty erodible land and, and the, probably shouldn't have been in production. So, you know, CRP started out to boost prices for farmers. They were paying them to not farm some stuff and to save some soil. Well, now, you know, over time it's turned into, hey, there's a bunch of environmental impacts for pollinators and wildlife and and so there's this recognition, and it's not just CRP. There's this whole list of of initiatives out there. And CRP um, contracts or the seed seed mixers are a lot better today than they were in the 80s. Oh, my gosh. My dad actually bought a farm. That, well, the farm that, that we've talked about on this program, Paint Creek Farm in southeast Kansas, was enrolled in CRP, and it was all fescue CRP. That was Jeez. actually allowable to plant it to – because some of it was – you know, bottom ground, floodable ground. Well, thank goodness for him to re-enroll it. We had to kill all that fescue out and plant it to natives. Um, so we would have wanted to do that anyway, but we were able to get cost share to help do that. Mm. But so, and then think about not just government, state and federal cost share to help do things and environmental friendly, but think of all the NGOs out there, the non-government organizations, you know, National Wild Turkey Federation, Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, Rough Grouse Society. All the pollinator I mean, the partnerships. Goes, QDMA, the list goes on and on. Um, and there's people out there, you can get money from them to help with some of these projects. You can get technical expertise from some of them. You can get technical expertise from folks like ourselves. Shameless plug. But those things weren't around 30 years ago, 40 years ago. A lot of these um things just weren't available um so society in itself um there's just a greater concern and overall environment and ecological concern for having true ecological function 
we, you just talked about this this generation that's that's more concerned. This pandemic has brought it even to the forefront. But we have more people that are conscious of, hey, what are we doing to our environment? We've got to do things that are sustainable for our kids and grandkids. Yeah. Well, I don't think people really worried about that 50, 60 years ago as much. And I'm not picking on, you know, grandparents. Just, <laughs> they were too worried about just surviving the, yeah. themselves and their kids, let alone two generations later. That, that's right. And and so now, you know, with with technology comes more knowledge and, and we're able to kind of peek into the future. And we're also able to look at the past and say, hey, these practices are detrimental. This isn't sustainable. Yep, and so we can project that some of some of that stuff. So, I think there's just incredible opportunities. And think about, and hopefully some of your listeners know about this, but precision ag. My gosh, precision ag is unbelievable. What's happening? So, this is technology that um, companies can can put in a tractor. And instead of a guy getting off the tractor and saying, well, that was a 20-acre field or a 200-acre field, and I've got, you know, whatever, so many thousand bushels of corn. Yep, I averaged 192 bushels per acre of corn. Well, you didn't average that on every acre. We've got instruments now that can go in tractors, and it'll tell a person where, hey, out in the middle of this field, you're getting 230 bushels of corn. But over in that southwest corner, you're getting 82 bushels an acre. You're losing money. Yep. Well, that's a game changer right there because if if we're trying to maximize production but also maximize profits for the, for the farmer, the landowner, hey, guess what? We've got some programs that will pay you more than that. You're, you're spending, <laughs> you know, most typically corn you got to – at least back in the day, I don't know what the numbers are now. Back in the day, you had to make a dang near 100 bushel corn to break even. So, you know, you got a corner over here that's raising 70 bushel corn, you're losing money. Yeah. Why are we doing this? Let's do something else with that corn, that southwest corner. And mm-hmm. maybe we can put it in a conservation program and get paid for it and yeah. not have to spend the time and the fuel to plant it and, and have a poor harvest. So just a lot of opportunities like that out there that are really exciting and we need to get the word out for sure i mean we've got riparian buffers um just crp in general um then you've got now these pollinator strips that they're putting right through fields like so crop farming has been really really good about trying to you know put in these things these programs these incentives to get farmers to do things that are a little bit you know, you can't take, we're not going to take away your whole field of soybeans or whole field of corn, but we are going to leave some areas to where at least, you know, you can, you can have some area that's helping uh, prevent erosion, but at the same time can provide habitat. Then there's, I mean, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of incentives to get farmers, cattle farmers to rotationally graze, um, fence out yep. woodlands, uh, or fence out your, your wooded, your woodlots. Um, fence out riparian areas, um, plant native warm season pastures. So you have warm season grazing, um, and, and then uh, move mineral stations, put in watering holes or watering tanks throughout the farm. Like there's so many cost share options out there that there's really no excuse to do things that we were doing in the eighties. No, 
Uh, hey, and some of this, you know, I'm, this isn't a podcast about, hey, how can we milk the government? But <laughs> I tell you what, some of this stuff, there's a reason some of it's lucrative because that's what it takes to get somebody to bite on it. Yeah. Um, now, my our farm in southeast Kansas, you know, my dad taught working with the local NRCS office, Natural Resource Conservation Service, The that's the feds. And uh, this was back in the 90s. And they were really pushing um, little shallow water wetlands. Yeah. And so they cost shared 90% to build this thing. Okay. So, okay. you know, a couple thousand dollars, it cost him 200. But then they gave him a five-year payment to have it. So basically, they almost paid for the entire wetland to be built and then paid him for the next five years because he did it. So Unbelievable. It's like, wait a minute, I get a duck hunting spot for almost free that at the end of five years, he's actually made several thousand dollars off of it. That's crazy. Well, this is a no-brainer. And I'm telling you, those practices, those kind of things are still out there. Yeah. I mean, this pollinator stuff is crazy lucrative. So yep. it's not just about, hey, you can make an extra nickel an acre over here instead of raising beans maybe think about doing this. There's some stuff out there that people can actually really make money. And granted, we want you to do this for a reason. Comes from tax and, dollars too. And, and make a big difference for pollinator conservation. I mean, you know, it's it's not just about, hey, I can cash in over here. Yep. You can cash in at the same time feeling good about, yeah, you just put in a monarch mix <laughs> that's covered up with, a variety of, of pollinators. And your wife's going to love it. And your wife loves it. And you're, you know, people are taking pictures out there and you got family pictures. And oh, by the way, you're, you know, when it's all said and done, you're putting about a thousand dollars an acre in your pocket for some of these things. It's crazy. So yeah. Uh, it's out there. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And um, man, it, 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 I think wouldn't do it justice to if I didn't mention cooperatives at this point. Um, yep. There's never been a better time to form a cooperative with your neighbors and get all on the same page, you know, in the, in the olden days and not really, <laughs> not really sharing much with your neighbor. Now there's a, it's the best time. It's better than ever to form a relationship with your neighbors, uh, start working together. Um, maybe, you know, when it comes to quails, especially you guys have been on here before and talking about it's going to be really hard to be an island. Um, but maybe you can work with your neighbors, form a cooperative, and create a much bigger island and uh, and actually get, have a fighting chance. Yep, that's right. You bet. And so, there's there's data all over out there from the southeast proves that that works. So you yeah. bet. Awesome. Well, Kyle, you got anything else, final thoughts? No, I don't think so. You know, stay positive. Um, we got a chance. There's still, um, I know it's frustrating at times for, a, hey, I've been a quail manager my whole life. <laughs> I feel like you're beating your head against the wall sometimes, but, but there's a lot of opportunity out there. And you know what? Where I see habitat, where I see good stuff, it I, works. Yeah, um, We're I'm, making a difference. I'm going to put you on the spot right here. Yep. Rut row. Um, you got to, I'm bringing it back. Matt and I have been too doggone busy, and it kind of slipped, but I'm putting my foot down. I'm bringing it back because it's too much fun for us. I don't know. I, I think people really like it. I know they've mentioned it before. Bringing back the plant and animal profiles. You got a plant 
that you would want to discuss, one of your favorites. So Plant and Animal Profiles brought to you by Pure Air Natives. Um, you know, all these CRP contracts that we're talking about are planting pollinator mixes. Pure That's right in Pure Air Natives' is wheelhouse. They're helping custom put put together these custom blends, and you can check it out at pureairnatives.com. Kyle, you got anything for us? I'll tell you what, the one I'll throw out today, and it's because it's really blooming right now on native prairies here in the Midwest, um, is pale purple coneflower. Mm. Um, beautiful plant. If you want to talk about making the wife happy in your pollinator planting, um, having lots of different uh, butterflies using it, uh, but just a, a beautiful spe- uh, plant, and, and I just was on one of my prairies the other day, and gosh, it was just exploding with pale purple coneflower all across the, the unit that we had recently burned. What kind it of butterflies are you impressive. seeing on it a lot? Uh, you see swallowtails seem to really yep. like it. Yep. Yep. Um, now, what's the interesting, I was trying to remember this the other day, but Native Americans and early explorers used it, echinacea. Um, they used it for medicinal purposes, correct? Yeah, well, yeah, some um, for the. You mean the root? Yes, the root. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Have you ever chewed on the root? Yeah, it's got a numbing agency to it. <laughs> it kind of make your tongue a little weird. Oh, it's it's like worse than being at the dentist. Yeah, uh, everybody needs to try it once, but you won't do it again because you're. <laughs> You're slobbering all over yourself because your entire <laughs> mouth goes numb. Yeah, and uh, I think they made it illegal to dig it in roadways, right? Oh, yeah. so many yeah. people were digging it. Yep. So, yeah, when I worked in Kansas, um, there was a guy that actually paid for an elk hunt digging that and selling it off of uh, public land, which then they passed rules and made it illegal. <laughs> paid for a $5,000 guided elk hunt by digging this stuff. So, Yeah. So yeah, poaching of <clears throat> of the roots actually became a problem in the right of ways, but unbelievable. Now, and now people yeah. aren't even I don't hear that many people talking about it, but No, um, most people probably don't have a clue that it even does that. Well, maybe now with all the yeah. herbal uh remedies <laughs> yeah. and yeah. home remedies that people are doing, you know, yeah. dandelion roots come pretty popular. Echinacea I know is somewhat popular and witch hazel yeah. and trying to think of some of the other really popular ones but pale purple coneflower that's a that's yeah. a man you see that everywhere in the ozarks right now yeah and you know there's a lot of species out there that are really beautiful but that's a reasonably priced one too um i always recommend that in a lot of plantings um there's some of these things and it's not the uh, you know not picking on the the native seed industry but some of these things are just hard to come by and yeah. and you can get into hundreds of dollars an ounce for some of these seeds, but yeah. typically coneflower is quite reasonable. That's how we're going to make money on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's one that, yeah, it's pretty easy to put in a mix because it's reasonably priced as well. So. Mm. Yep. Chad found an interesting one. He sent me, he sent me yesterday, old, old field milk fine. I never heard huh. of it. No. Looks like it's just one of your milk vines. Um, looks like, uh, and it's got kind of a dark purple brownish looking bloom. Weird looking thing. But huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, guys, um, hopefully you enjoyed this week's podcast. Share it with some of your friends that have always made the comment. I don't know where all the quail went. I don't see the quail anymore. Well, here you go. This is a podcast for them. 
Kyle, once again, thanks for coming on. Guys, if you've got any questions or interested in our consulting services, we're doing this. Man, it seems like day in and day out we're somewhere. I haven't been home a lot lately. Been in Ohio, been in Texas, uh, been in Oklahoma, been in Missouri, North Missouri. Um, Kyle and Frank also do consulting. I know uh, Kyle is headed to Florida. Is that July? Yep. 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 Got moved. Corona Corona moved me to mid-July going to – it'll be nice in South Florida mid-July, huh? It'll be 110. <laughs> it's kind of like when Matt said, hey, can you go to Texas in June? I was like, nope, can't do it. Sorry, booked up. <laughs> and there I was, yeah. got in the truck, and it was 98 degrees. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so anyway, guys, if you're interested in our consulting services and um, – Helping you with upland birds, helping you with white-tailed deer, helping you with just overall holistic management, improving the habitat for all native species, working cattle into the mix, uh, finding ways in financial management on your farm where you're not spending so much to to get the results you're hoping for. We can do it all. Check us out at landandlegacy.tv or shoot us an email at landandlegacy.info at landandlegacy.tv, I should say. So anyway, we will catch you next week. Yep. Yep.